us the Southside's own Jonathan Hood. Weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. There's Perez. Deep into the night. And a two-run homer for Baez. And there it goes. Abreu massacres this ball to left center field. Donna goes in motion left. Snap it to Michelle. He's running to the left. Angling 25-20. Got a block for Brown. 15, 10, 5. Touchdown, touchdown, touchdown. Don't win it. We're headed to Atlanta. Trubisky's going to run it. And he is going to get a first down. Jonathan Hood, weeknights on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Welcome in to Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. I'm Chris Black along with Adam Abdallah singing for Jonathan Hood tonight. You can follow us on Twitter at Adam A. Abdallah and at Chris Black. We are live from the First Midwest Bank Studios on State Street in downtown Chicago. We're here till 10 o'clock tonight. Lots to do tonight. Abdallah at 7.30, Kirk Goldsberry from ESPN. He has a brand new book out, Sprawl Ball, the visual tour of the new era of the NBA. We will hear from Kirk Goldsberry at 7.30 talking about the NBA and the new way of the league, shooting three-pointers, space and pace, and everything in between. We'll also talk with Keith Pompey from Philly. He's the 76ers reporter for Philly.com. We'll talk about Embiid, Jimmy Butler, what's next for Philadelphia as they head in for an elimination game. Will they be uh, out after their next game? Will mm. the 76ers have to make some tough decisions with mm. their core going forward? And will they fire their coach, Brett Brown? Will he be fired? And then lots to get to throughout the night. We'll also keep uh, the, the White Sox and the Cubs up to date as we go along here. Jesse Rogers is live at Wrigley Field with in-game updates throughout the evening. So stay tuned. We'll keep you up to date with the Cubs and the White Sox throughout the show. Lots to get through with the NBA, Abdal. But I want to start you tonight. With the NFL. Well, Chris, I mean, listen, you and I are, are together. We have to talk NFL. We always talk NFL. We'll obviously get to the NBA. We'll check in on the yes. Cubs, like you said, all that good stuff. But when does when is it not a good time to talk NFL? It's always a great time to talk football. And we're open for business and your phone calls at 312-332-3776. Or you can tweet at us also later in the show. We have Bellator 221 tickets to give away. So keep listening throughout to tonight's show. We have a pair of tickets and a four-pack, which is a VIP pack that includes a meet-and-greet. So Bellator 221 tickets. Before or after? I believe before. Okay, because after might get a little sketch. Uh, Yeah, so uh, stay tuned for that throughout the evening. Lots of baseball to get to later on. We'll have full Cubs and White Sox postgame coverage. But it's time to talk football, and I am happy that Odell Beckham Jr. the other night spoke at the Met Gala. And Abdallah, did you see what he said the other night? He said that he's planning on being uh, for the next couple of years with the Cleveland Browns and winning as many championships there as possible. He thinks that the Browns are the new Patriots. That's what Odell Beckham Jr. said. He also said that he thinks Baker Mayfield, the quarterback, he's next. He feels like he's the next great quarterback. He's Brett Favre. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. Those are the quotes from Odell Beckham Jr. of the Cleveland Browns. And I thank him. Because the Browns are doing so much in the media this offseason that no one's focusing on the Chicago Bears. 
I think people here are focusing on the Chicago Bears. But I think we are, I, but nationally, I, a lot of yes. people are on this well, Browns yeah. bandwagon. Well, because look at look at the the storylines just off the field, just all the 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 names that they have there. Whether it's Baker Mayfield, Odell Beckham Jr., just the talent that they've surrounded, and you know what happens. What happens is people see all the talk, people see uh, the additions, and they flock to Vegas, and they flock to the number, and they flock to the win total, and they immediately bet the over. Because, sure, all these stars accumulated, of course it's going to work, right? I mean, the only way that this team could be any more hyped is if they were on HBO Hard Knocks, which they were on already, so they can't be on again. And and that would be a uh, beat writer and a uh, sports media radio host dream yeah is if the browns were on hard knocks with this collection of talent right um so you mentioned there vegas and i was thinking about the bears earlier today the win total for the chicago bears is nine and a half mm-hmm. i started thinking to myself you know ryan pace has done a great job this offseason basically the bears have zero needs right what's the need a kicker Okay, we all understand. They need to upgrade the kicker it's position. It's only the greatest need of all time, according to most. Uh, but outside the kicker position, this Bears team is talented, mm-hmm. and they have no needs on the surface when you look at starters, what you're doing on the football team. Uh, you have offense, defense. Defense was great. The offense has had additions in the draft, free agency, everything coming together for Ryan Pace and the Chicago Bears. Yet the win total is at 9.5. Let me ask you this. The Bears are usually a public team, no? Mm-hmm. In Vegas, what that means is they are a team that people like to go to Vegas, put a bet down on the Chicago Bears because, one, they're Bears fans, and there's Bears fans all over this country. It's a large market. Uh, they're good. They're going to be on national TV, and a they lot. have been on national TV quite a bit. They were flexed into many games this last offseason. So a lot of people are aware that the Chicago Bears are good. They're a public team with a great defense. They're up-and-coming, new head coach, young quarterback. But yet Vegas has them at nine and a half wins. And when you look at the win totals in the NFL for this season, there are four teams that are over 10 plus victories in the win totals. You have New England with the highest at 11, Kansas City, Los Angeles Rams, and the New Orleans Saints all at 10 and a half wins in Vegas. The Bears are beneath that. But yet this team has no needs. And I think many of us here in Chicago look at this Bears team and say this should be a championship run for the Chicago Bears team. The time is now to win. But why does Vegas have them at nine and a half? Is it the schedule? Is it the young quarterback? Yes, yes. Is it because the defense, although great last year, a lot of that relied on turnovers. Uh And maybe Vegas is accounting for maybe not as many turnovers, Uh maybe the young quarterback, the tougher schedule. Schedule. Maybe this team isn't as good as all of us here in Chicago actually think it is. I don't think that they're, they're, they're necessarily going to be not as good. I don't think that that's fair to say. I think that you have a second year under Matt Nagy. I think that the offense uh, added a couple pieces that are more fit the Matt Nagy system. You moved on from Jordan Howard, who couldn't catch if he was wide open. Um, so you moved on from guys that didn't fit the Matt Nagy system that were here when Matt Nagy was brought in. He didn't really have a choice. You've gotten guys now who you've acquired guys, whether it's through the draft or free agency, that fit more of the Matt Nagy system. So I think that the offense, look for the offense to maybe take a step forward. Now, I can counter that and say, well, 
There's tape on Mitchell Trubisky and Matt Nagy. There's tape on 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 the trickster that is Matt Nagy and running weird uh, sets with offensive linemen and defensive linemen, and and you've got you know these weird packages of guys coming in and and defensive players scoring touchdowns. There's tape on that now, right? So I could say that maybe maybe they stay stagnant. Maybe maybe. Mitchell Trubisky doesn't take that step forward. But I would like to assume, as a Bears fan, that a second year under Matt Nagy would mean a step forward for Mitchell Trubisky. So maybe I would say that. But now you mentioned the defense. I think the loss of Vic Fangio is going to be bigger than people think. I think he's a, he's a very big voice in that defensive room. He may not come across in the media, may not come across in the sideline, but he's a very big voice in that defensive room. I'm not saying Chuck Pagano's a bad coach. I'm just saying that losing Vic Fangio is going to be a bigger blow. And trying to come up with as many turnovers as they did. There are literally turnovers. If you go back and watch the tape, Chris, where the ball has a choice. The ball makes a choice. It says, ball, what am I going to do? I'm either going to bounce out of bounds or I'm going to bounce into the arms of a running defender for six points. It chooses to bounce into the hands of a running defender for six points. It definitely broke the Bears' way last year, for sure. Yeah, so a couple of those balls decide to bounce the other way. They don't have as many turnovers. And so you always have to think you're going to regress back to the mean when it comes to turnovers. So I don't think you're going to be able to replicate the amount of turnovers that the Bears had because uh, it's, it's... 50% 50% luck, it's 40% skill, it's 10% concentrated power of will, as Fort Minor, Finer told us. So, and now you look to the schedule. Listen, that's a great reference. I don't care what you say. You go to the schedule. The Packers have a new coach. Aaron Rodgers is one of the best quarterbacks in football. He's got some new additions. They've, got, they've revamped that entire defense to try to combat Mitchell Trubisky, of course, and the Bears. So I think the Packers are going to be a lot better. The Vikings are still a decent team. Okay, the Lions, maybe not so much, but the Vikings are still a decent team. And you look at all the teams that they have to play, the Saints, the Chargers, the Eagles, the Rams, the Chiefs, obviously the Packers twice and obviously the Vikings twice. There are a lot of good teams on this schedule that the Bears are now going to have to face. So I think all of those things, I'm not surprised that the win total is a little bit lower. And I wouldn't be surprised that come prediction time, when we get here in a couple months and, and, and experts start making their picks, I think that you're going to see more experts that are saying that the team that might, the surprise team that might miss the playoffs are going to be the Chicago Bears. That's Adam Abdallah. I'm Chris Black here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Singing for Jonathan Hood tonight on Under the Hood. And Abdallah, if you take a look at the win totals for the division, the Bears are at nine and a half wins. The Packers also nine and a half. The Vikings nine and a half. And the Detroit Lions at seven. So it's, it, okay, we laid out all of the positives for the Chicago Bears. And I asked this question as we started this conversation. Does Vegas know something that here in the city we are might we might be blinded to because we think that this team has zero needs and that everything is aiming towards a championship in this next season, right? Mm-hmm. Everything's coming together. Is something is there something we're missing because the Packers have the same win total. The Vikings have the same win total. There are four teams that Vegas has said are elite teams in the NFL. The Saints, the Rams, the Chiefs, and the Patriots. The Bears are not one of those teams. I get it. They're a half game off of 10 wins. I understand that. But it's fascinating to me that we see that there's no needs at all, except for the kicker position. I assume they'll figure it out. Yet Vegas is telling us nine and a half 
if you told me this team was supposed to be much better, don't you think that they would have been a 10.5 win team in Vegas? I would think so. Especially the way the defense played last season? Look, and I think that you're going to see a lot of Kool-Aid being sipped at the beginning of the season. Because if you look at the way the schedule shakes out, maybe that's why... The why that's why Vegas the number is so low. The beginning of the season is pretty easy. You get the Packers at home, so you assume if they're going to split with the Packers, they're going to split based on road and home, right? So the Bears, let's say the Bears win that game, they can beat the Broncos, they can beat the Redskins, they can beat the Vikings at home, they can beat the Raiders. Then Saints, Chargers, Eagles, you get the Lions in there, then you get the Rams, and then you get the Giants. So I mean, there are tough games in there. It's going to be a, there's a tough stretch of games in the middle and the end of the season and maybe they just think the the road of attrition hits the bears but ultimately i think that look it's hard to win 10 it's hard to win 12 games in the nfl of course it is and and i think that's why it's noteworthy to say heading into next season nothing's guaranteed right i think we all assume the defense is going to be as good as it was you laid out why there might be a drop back based on Pagano Fangio. Everyone thinks schematically Fangio is one of the best in football at mm-hmm. calling a defense. You see the way the opportunities fell for the Chicago Bears last season. Will they fall the same way this season? And then the quarterback in year two of Matt Nagy's system. I talked to Mitch Trubisky last week and I asked him, are you more comfortable in year two of Matt Nagy's system? Uh, I'm very comfortable. I know what we need to work on this offseason. Uh, it's great been able to like go back through the off offense and watch our own cut-ups of the plays instead of watching uh in- install from uh the other teams he's been on then watching Kansas City Kips so we know what we need to work on we know what we need to prove we're so much further along with the offense because everybody knows the offense so we're just dialed it's we're able to go through details we're able to play that much faster um and just everyone master position and get everybody on the same page to execute and play really fast so we kind of know what we like as a team what fits our style and what we did really well and then we also know what, what we want to work on so we just have more focused plan for this offseason the coach has done a great job just getting us back going going back through installs and then we just got to catch up the new guys and the, and the young rookies uh, within this offense and we'll, we just got to get to our playmakers and roll that's mitch trubisky i'm chris black with am abdallah here on espn 1000 and if you remember about a few games into the season uh, head coach Matt Nagy said that he needed to not dumb it down for Mitchell Trubisky, but rein it in, rein the playbook in a little bit. I'm interested to see that playbook open up now. So if he, if Trubisky's got the basics down now of this playbook, I'm interested to see because I think that the Matt Nagy is a much better coach right now than Mitchell Trubisky is a quarterback right now. I think and, that's fair. And if he had a quarterback that maybe was not necessarily like coming into his first year, if he had a three or four year starter that was able to comprehend everything and not looking at defenses and everything like that, that then he could open it up more. So I'm interesting now and in hoping that now that Trubisky's had a year with Nagy, this could open up a lot more and we can see a lot more from this quarterback who everybody wants this everybody wants this guy to be around for a while. So if he can perform he will be, but I want to see what the tricks now that he can use and not use the gimmick plays of bringing defensive players in and using offensive linemen and receivers and that kind of stuff. We're talking Bears football with you on the SPM 1000 at 312-332-3776. First up, Chuck in Hobart, Indiana. What's up, Chuck? Hey, guys. Uh, first, my thoughts are the Bears didn't play very good quarterbacks last year. Nine and a half wins is a good total number, and until they prove that they can stay with the elite quarterbacks of the of the 
of the uh, National Football League. The only good one they played was Rodgers last year. What are you guys' thoughts? Thanks for the call, Chuck. We appreciate it. You know, the defense last season in DVOA, the advanced metrics from a football outsiders, the Bears' defense was so good, they were by far the best defense in the entire National Football League by a wide margin. And I get it. Yeah, some of the quarterbacks they faced were not great. I understand that. And this year, you will see a more challenging schedule and a more challenging group of quarterbacks for the Bears to face off against this season. And that's a good point because I think the worst game that the defense might have played was probably that New England game. Pretty good uh, quarterback, If, if you no? take out the... Com- I mean, and think about it. Think about the first game of the season, that loss. Uh, you lost to the, one of the best quarterbacks in the league. So the two, your two worst losses, yeah. besides the playoff game, were to Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. Like, Aaron Rodgers came back and had a heroic game against you. Like, you couldn't even be mad at that. Like, yeah, you can be mad at it, but you're like, I'm just happy. I'm just crazy to be watching this this insane performance by Aaron Rodgers. But if you look at it, he's got a very good point because the two quarterbacks were very good. That's Adam Abdallah. I'm Chris Black here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. So we will get back to some football conversation in a little bit here on ESPN 1000. Kirk Goldsberry coming up at 7.30. We'll also get an in-game report from Jesse Rogers. He's live at Wrigley Field. Abdallah, I wanted to mention this to you because I saw it come across right before we started the show. The Lakers and Tyrone Liu have reached an impasse on a deal, according to Adrian Wojnarowski and Dave McMahon of ESPN.com. The impasse has come, and there is no agreement on the franchise uh, to have a head coach with Ty, Ty Lu for the Los Angeles Lakers. The reason being is the Lakers offered Ty Lue a three-year deal worth $18 million, and it seems like Tyrone Lue was being told which assistants he would have to hire if he got the head coaching job with the Los Angeles Lakers. Lou said, I need money to show that I am a championship level head coach he wanted a five-year deal with the appropriate uh, compensation to match with that and his resume of being a championship level coach and he didn't want to have to be told whose assistants are going to be now frank isola yesterday in the athletic reported that there are rumors and reports going around that tom thibodeau was one of the names being pushed by LeBron James to be an assistant, to be the lead assistant for Ty Lue in the Lakers. And clearly, Lue not happy with this. The Lakers right now in this head coaching search is a complete disaster. I wouldn't be happy if I was Lue and I heard that name being mentioned. Because what's to stop a a bad uh, trip or a bad slew of games, a bad first month from them just saying, all right, Lue, sorry, goodbye. Tom Thibodeau's the coach now. It is interesting that LeBron James wants... Tom Thibodeau to be an assistant, but he's not pushing Tom Thibodeau to be a, a lead head coach. Well, you know why. Uh, Sham Sharania is reporting that here are the names in the coaching search right now. Lionel Hollins, Frank Vogel, Mike Woodson. So okay. you have Monty Williams take the Suns job. You have Ty Lu say that I don't want it because you're not going to pay me fairly for what I'm worth. And now you're going for a bunch of retread head coaches, mm-hmm. and Tom Thibodeau is still sitting out there. I have a feeling that... that- LeBron James knows what Tom Thibodeau is good at, and I think the rest of us know what Tom Thibodeau is good at. Tom Thibodeau is very good at coaching up guys on defense, and he's, he's a good head coach, but ultimately in this NBA, the idea of you're playing 40 minutes a night no matter what, and we're going to grind out wins no matter what, is not for this NBA. And so he sees that and goes, look, I want a head coach that I can level with that can be like, hey, I'm not playing tonight. 
but I also want a guy who's going to hold us to a higher standard when we play defense, and that's Tom Thibodeau. And a guy who can work and build young players, which the Lakers are going to have a few of. So that ultimately is why I can I can see the Tom Thibodeau name being wanted by LeBron. But if I'm Ty Lue, I've got a head coach who's won breathing down my neck. I don't want that. Well, LeBron James and the Lakers hang into this offseason. Not only does Magic Johnson abruptly quit without telling anybody, mm-hmm. right? He just shows up and wants to talk to the I'm media. Out. He doesn't talk to LeBron. He doesn't talk to Genie. He just quits to the media. Okay. So Magic leaves. You have this situation where you have the superstar, the best player on the planet, comes to your franchise. Is this more of a curse than a gift? Because you look at what the Lakers are set up to do. They were kind of angling towards, we could be the next it team. Mm-hmm. It seems like none of the star players want to go there. Kawhi, Jimmy Butler, Kyrie. Are any of these guys this summer going to land one of those max slots with the Lakers and join LeBron James? Has LeBron James lost the appeal to get people to want to play with him? Have they seen what he brings to the table and say, you know what, I'm probably just as good as him. I could probably do what he does, and I don't need to be sidecar Willie with LeBron James anymore. Dude, they don't want to play with him. They don't want to be in movies with him. He has problems getting people to be in Space Jam. That's not even playing with him. That's showing up on a movie set and hanging out with LeBron. Yes, and that, that's from the report from Malika Andrews saying that Giannis Antetokounmpo wants nothing to do with Space Jam 2 this summer. I mean, he'd be a great monster. Well, it, it, based on what's going on currently with the Milwaukee Bucks, he might be too busy with a, a championship parade. That's also true. But I think that... It's a, when you're, when you're playing with LeBron, it's a double-edged sword because you either win because of him or you lose because of yourself, right? You're either winning and it's like, ah, you won. You got LeBron. Of course you won a championship. Yeah. You get no credit for that. And if you lose, it's, well, LeBron didn't have enough around him. Yeah. You didn't do enough to help him. Well, what? No. I'm not, I wouldn't, I would want to go and I'm not being, I'm not trying to be one of the players that's like, I'm going to go and do this on my own. But if I'm Durant or if I'm Kyrie, it's like, look, I've dealt with, I don't need this. I can do this on my own. I'm good enough to where like if two of us team up, we can compete. And we can be like, look at the, what the Bucks are doing. Look at what the Raptors are doing. It's Kawhi and a bunch of dudes out there, right? Because they've got some decent players that are starting to show up. But ultimately, Kawhi is by far and away the best team on that, the best player on that team and the best player in that series. And they're probably going to advance and take on the Bucks in the Eastern Conference Finals. So why wouldn't Kawhi just say, I still want to go to LA. I'll just go to the Clippers. They have a bunch of money. I'll go to them. They have two slots available. I'll go to the Clippers, bring someone with me, and there you go. There's a team. If you're the Lakers, do you shop LeBron James? <sighs> That's tough. What's LeBron James' true value right now? I mean, because if you could land the number one pick in this year's draft, I think I would rather have the number one pick, no? I mean, how many years of LeBron being great do you have left? Is it worth submarining the entire franchise just so you can maybe try and win one, two years? What are you left with? This Lakers situation is a complete mess. Black and Abdallah. Chris Black and Adam Abdallah on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Chris Black and Adam Abdallah here singing in for Jonathan Hood tonight on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. 
Abdal, we will have full White Sox and Cubs postgame coverage and around the 9 o'clock hour. Uh, we'll hear from Tim Anderson. We'll hear from Addison Russell. We'll hear from Theo Epstein. Lots to get to throughout the show this evening. Uh, earlier uh, this week, on Monday, I got a chance to talk with Kurt Goldsberry. He's an NBA analyst for ESPN.com. He also worked as the VP strategic researcher for the San Antonio Spurs. Uh, he has a new book out. It's called Sprawl Ball. Uh, the book is about the visual tour of the new era of the NBA. Basically, it's about three-point shooting and about how everyone now shoots from deep in the NBA. It's not something that I think NBA fans didn't know, but there's still enough stuff that every time I read more of it and deeper and deeper I get it, I'm like, oh my God, like this is, it's crazy how much the three-pointer is so much more valuable than the two-pointer. And like just saying that, it sounds obvious, but he does a great job of illustrating it, literally illustrating it and explaining why teams have completely rebuilt themselves around the three-point line. So I started the conversation off with Kurt Goldsberry uh, by asking him, how has he changed the way he views the current NBA? Well, I think a lot of us have sort of become more sort of aware of efficiency. And that was a word that we wouldn't really use in sports 15 years ago. Uh, And then thanks to Moneyball and sort of the analytics revolution, whether we're talking about baseball or football uh, or basketball, the word efficiency has crept into sort of our, our dialogue. And for me, every time I watch basketball now, I'm thinking about things in terms of was that an efficient play? Particularly, was that an efficient shot? Um, a bad shot is often described in terms of efficiency. So, you know, as somebody who's studied um, shooting data obsessively for about 10 years now, I'm keenly aware of what is and what isn't an efficient shot on the court for almost every player in the, in the, in the league. Um, and, and that has affected how I watch games and how teams are getting their guys shots and who is taking what shots from where and when. And I think, you know, whether it's a Steph Curry open three or a LaMarcus Saldridge uh, mid-range shot or whether it's Giannis dunk, I think all of us are sort of thinking about these in ways that we weren't thinking about them 15 years ago. So what's really cool is in the book, you have uh, pictures that go along with what you are suggesting and what you're finding out and all the research that goes into what you're seeing. And I think what's really interesting is when you watch a game, like you watched a game last night, the Nuggets and the Blazers, um, it, it seems like a lot of the analytical conversation with baseball, like you mentioned, in football, sometimes you don't necessarily see it with your eyes. But in the NBA, you see that all these players know the information that you're seeing and talking about in this book, and they're following along exactly like what the pictures are showing in your book based on the shot charts, that players in today's NBA know to stay away from the mid-range, to shoot the three-point shot more, to to be more efficient. It's kind of cool to see the pictures and then match it with an NBA game and real action now and see that they match up almost identically. Yeah, I'm, I appreciate you saying that, Chris. And, and one of the things I'm pretty proud of is the book is is visually very compelling in a way that it, most sports books haven't been. It, 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 it's it's full of beautiful color illustrations by Aaron Dana, and then my own charts, um, which attempt to sort of capture where guys shoot the ball from and how effective they are from those places. Um, and you're right. I think all of these guys have an awareness of the, the, the economic landscape of the league they're playing in and the playing surface that they're playing on. And the realities of that sort of economy are that the, the mid-range is, 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 is bad. It's bad for business. 
Um, and, and the more threes, the better. And teams like the Bucks and the Rockets are, are certainly sort of acting like that. I mean, the, the, the Houston Rockets were the first time, team in NBA history last year to shoot over half of their shots from behind the three-point line, and they did it again this year. I mean, that's, that's where this is all going. Um, and it's because of, of the main trends that we, we highlight in the book um, and why those trends exist that we're starting to see these wildly sort of different shot selection patterns than we saw in the game just 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, that that's what's funny to me is you go back 10 years, right? Uh, 2009, 2010, the Los Angeles Lakers win back-to-back championships, and the NBA looked dramatically different, right? Because it was Kobe on the block, it was Paul Gasol, it was Andrew Bynum down low. Those Laker teams were dramatically different than what we're seeing in today's NBA. Like, I wonder if that team could even win a title against what they're facing now in the league with the Rockets, the Warriors, the Bucks, and way these teams are, are spreading it out and playing uh, the offensive style of basketball that we're viewing right now. No, they probably couldn't, but neither could the Rockets go back into that environment the way the game was called and officiated and, and be nearly as successful. I mean, I think yeah, these eras are very difficult to compare, and, and, and the way that the teams are playing now is so you know different uh, than it was back then. Um, and it's crazy, like, look, talking about shot charts, if you compare Kobe's shot charts, I mean, here's a guy who feasted in the mid-range. Um, even players, like, from that era as well, like Dirk Nowitzki, uh, feasted in the mid-range. And there's no superstar that really thrives in the mid-range now. I mean, Durant does uh, to a degree. Um, Kawhi does to a degree. But players like Kobe and Dirk, like, took a lot more shots per game in that area. Um, so as we go more and more towards this new sort of analytically driven version of the sport um we're seeing less and less of that like mid-range fadeaway uh elbow jumper post-up play um and i think that's kind of interesting but i'm not sure i love it for the future of the sport i don't want to like walk away from the heritage of the game um and i think like if the if the nba wants to consider making some changes to to the where the three-point line is the game can still be really fun and open um which the three-point line has given us but we can also breathe some life back into those more traditional forms of scoring in the mid-range that are currently uh, are currently endangered um, and have a chance of, of being almost completely eliminated from the sport. Kirk Goldsberry joins Chris Black here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. He's the author of Sprawl Ball. So you have written about this, some new ideas with the three-point line on where to change it and what to do. And I think it makes a lot of sense to move it back a little bit. Um, the one thing yeah, that I'm, yeah. I'm kind of worried about, though, is if you eliminate the corner three-point shot, would that then change the way offenses would kind of line up and run and you wouldn't kind of have the spacing that you have uh, on the corners? Yeah, Chris, that, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, I want to say, yeah, that there's, there's this, this history of the NBA is one of rule changes, but many times we have to study the consequences of those changes, and I think Getting rid of the corner three is something I wrote about on ESPN.com a couple weeks ago. It's an excerpt from the book Mm -hmm. um, and and a huge part of the last chapter. Um, But you're right. Like, what would happen if we did this? Um, Would it be good for the sport or not? Would it it cause the the, the paint to be all clogged up in ways that are unattractive? I don't know. Um, But I, I know enough to know that it's worth considering. And for these rules to go into effect, I think we can pilot them in the D-League or even some preseason games uh, and see what happens um, and always go back um, if we don't like what, what happens. Uh, but the thing with the corner three is, Chris, I would say that 
if you don't like stationary players, there's no rule in the sport that's probably created more stationary players uh, than the, the corner three. Yeah, of course, because it is the best uh, shot basically in all basketball. And I, I think most common basketball fans know that now. Um, but there was a perception back in the day that, you know, it was the same as all other three-point shots, even though it was a heck of a lot closer. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a couple feet closer. It's actually 22 feet in the corners and, and as you know, 23.75 around the break. Um, the other reason that number is so high in the corners is the shooters that the teams place there are generally really good shooters. They put their best shooters there. Um, they have their feet set. They're almost always catch-and-shoot tries. So they go in at a higher rate, almost 40% of the time uh, across the league uh, for a three-point shot, the, the corner three is. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's become a very easy shot. Um, and then in terms of the openness of the game, it's been very important because it, it keeps the player, one or two offensive players over there, which stretches out the defense and that opens up the game. Um, and that's why you're right to say, like, I don't know what would happen if we got rid of it. Certainly there'd be less stationary players over there. It'd be a harder shot. Um, but that's where we would bring in coaches and executives from, from around the league and the board of governors to actually sort of examine what would happen to the sport if we did this. Is this, is, is there a set of un, unintended consequences that would be really negative if we got rid of that shot? I don't know. Um, as an analyst, I can't, I can't sort of advocate for these rule changes um, without sort of understanding those, those consequences on tactics and what, what, what the alternative actually look like. Um, but here's the, the main point of the, at the end of the book is that, you know, I think analytics has a really exciting opportunity to be one of the heads of the table uh, where these things are considered. Um, for instance, we can sort of project what the shooting percentages would be if we moved the line back to different distances in ways we couldn't do just 10, 5, 10 years ago. So um, I think there's a really good opportunity for analytics to help us inform the future of the game uh, and understand how potential rule changes might affect performance. One of the cool things that I thought uh, about the book uh, is the fact that the catch-and-shoot and the analytics that go into the catch-and-shoot, and you just referenced it there in your, your answer about how the catch-and-shoot player is probably the best player on the floor shooting from deep, and they're usually standard uh, standing in the corner waiting for the ball to come to them. And then the difference between someone whose ability to get off that catch-and-shoot quicker than others and the analytics behind that, I thought that was fascinating in the book. Hey, thanks. Yeah, it's uh, a concept I took from baseball. Uh, called pop time, which is used in baseball to, to measure the, 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 the time it takes for a catcher to catch the ball from the pitcher and throw it down to the second baseman or shortstop on a stolen base uh, attempt. Um, and and, and the, the equivalent in basketball is after you catch the basketball from, say, let's say you're P.J. Tucker mm-hmm. and James Harden has just thrown you the basketball, how long does it take you to get from the receiver, uh, receiving end of that pass to releasing your shot. Um, and the player tracking data has enabled us to study that effect. And some shooters are a lot faster than others, uh, and those guys get off a lot more shots. They're open in situations where other guys aren't open. Um, players like Kyle Korver and Clay Thompson are unbelievably fast when it comes to shooting the basketball. And some of the other the, the bigs, like Joel Embiid um, or Paul Millsap, are actually really slow. Uh, and, and it's just it's just it's just another sort of data point in, in how obsessed we are with shooting that these types of evaluations are now very relevant in the sport when they weren't just a handful of years ago. Yeah, for sure. And the like chart that's in the book uh, shows like Chris Middleton is third, uh, Evan Fournier is fourth, and like I don't think I would have thought of those two as two of the best, quickest three point shooters. I think most people would probably say Steph Curry, right? Uh, but really, 
You know, like pretty good bet. Yeah, everyone, everyone's answer is like Steph Curry, and before him, it would be like Ray Allen, right? Because Ray Allen was so quick with it as well. Um, I, I think the one takeaway that I have about this entire era of the league is that Steph Curry is basically a cheat code, and he has now opened yeah. the eyes to everyone on like a new way of basketball. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. I like that that you call him a cheat code, and I think Curry in his his breakout in the middle part of this decade. Um, you know, he, he, he barely beat Ray Allen's three point shooting record. I think with 272 made threes in one, in one year and then 286 the, the next year or something like that. I forget the exact numbers, but then heading into that Steve Kerr era, 2015, 16, um, I, I think he, yeah, he, that was the year he had 402 threes. I mean, nobody in the NBA had ever made more than 300 threes in a single season. And then Steph comes along and hits 402 in one season, um, which would be equivalent to somebody like in Major League Baseball suddenly hitting 100 home runs in a season, just <laughs> absolutely destroying the previous record. Um, and in doing so, proving that you could be the MVP um, with, with the three-point shot as your signature weapon. Remember, no MVP in NBA history before Steph was like the most dominant three-point shooter. He, he, he totally proved that old adage that you cannot win the NBA championship with as a jump shooting team. He and his teammates completely dismissed that notion and put it to bed. Um, and, and, and you're exactly right. Like the entire league woke up to the power of the three point shot at some point this decade. And he had a lot to do with that. Certainly his teams and their successes and, 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 and his teammates deserve credit too. Clay Thompson is no slouch and winning huge playoff games with ridiculous three point shooting performances. Um, but yeah, I think whether you, whether you think of him as a cheat code or a pioneer or uh, a visionary or whatever, there's there's no doubt that he's one of the most sort of definitive players uh, of the time and, and sort of driving our obsession with with three point shooting in the NBA. So if Steph's the one that woke us up, then it's the Rockets who are the ones that are like trying to use the analytics and use every uh, tool possible to get James Harden and and that team past the Warriors. Um, if someone's not as familiar with uh, maybe the, the the analytics and the reasoning behind the way the Rockets play the way they do, uh, how would you kind of describe that to just someone who just casually turns on a basketball game? <laughs> well, it's harder to do on audio, so I recommend people go go look at the book because there's one or two graphics that I think do a great job of of showing why these teams uh, are acting this way. But in essence, there's really just two efficient places to shoot the basketball in the NBA, in the paint, and, and behind the three-point line. And those two zones are where you will find the Houston Rockets trying to shoot every one of their shots. Um, and then the third place is the free-throw line, uh, and we'll get to that in a second. But in terms of field goal attempts, the Rockets are sort of showing the rest of the league that you can take all of your shots in these two areas, number one, and be one of the most efficient offenses in the league doing it, number two. Um, and then... James Harden, the leader of that team, uh, also does that. Um, but he is is very um, ahead of his time when it comes to realizing that drawing fouls, particularly shooting fouls, is the other way to hack offensive efficiency. So between threes, um, free throws, and layups and dunks, um, the more you can get good shots in, in those categories, uh, the, the more efficient your team's going to be. And that's like you're, like you're saying, no team embodies that philosophy and has adapted that philosophy more than the Houston Rockets. Um, 
and they are doing really well. I mean, they might not beat the definitive team of the decade, um, but even that this close is, is a testament to the innovation of their offense. Sure, and they, I think many could argue that last year they were the second-best team in the league, and who knows how the rest of this series plays out, but um, unless someone else beats the Warriors, it, chances are we're going to walk away from this season saying the Rockets were probably the second or third best team behind the Warriors this season anyway. Uh, Kirk Goldsberry joining Chris Black here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. I have to ask you this because here in Chicago, all of our basketball hopes and dreams rely on the lottery that's coming up next week and whether or not the Chicago <laughs> Bulls can land the number one pick. If they do, and Zion Williamson is the number one pick, if you look at all the data and the analytics, how is Zion going to fit offensively outside of the offensive rebounding and the passing and all this in a league that concentrates so much on three-point shooting? How is Zion going to fit in with this new era of NBA basketball? Well, like I said, the best shot in the league is still near the basket. And Zion is a big, big kid. And I think he will be able to get to the rim um, and dominate the paint uh, within a few years of matriculating into the NBA. So I think he's more he's more likely to dominate games like Giannis does or like LeBron does um, in the paint and then kicking out um, than like Curry does. Uh, so I would say, you know, if you end up with a player like Zion, you have to surround him with shooter, shooters for two reasons. One, he can't shoot very well himself, although Zion can shoot a little bit. Um, but two, in a league where your three-point shooting is almost a prerequisite to winning games these days, um, you have to line the floor with at least three or four of them. And, and if, you, if he's one of your guys, uh, you, you got to get everybody else on the floor to do that. And then the last point there is that he will become a very good three-point assister in the same way that LeBron and Giannis have. These guys that are attacking the center of the court right now are actually really good catalysts for three-point shooting um, because they they collapse the defense uh, and then kick it out to shooters. And and, and Milwaukee uh, has done a fantastic job, and that's sort of what's fueled their awakening up there this year is that they they recognize that Giannis was such a powerful interior player. Um, But what Coach Budenholzer was able to do there this year was surround him with really good perimeter shooters and an offense that got out of his way. Um, in a way that Jason Kidd's offense didn't get out of Giannis's way, Coach Buds does. So if you get Zion, I think that's the approach you got to take. Do you think there's any front offices that are kind of secretly hoping that they get the second or third pick so then they could get a point guard or a lead guard that can shoot threes <laughs> and play this new style of basketball? Do you think there's anyone within the <laughs> league that would say, you know what, I, I kind of think R.J. Barrett or John Morant kind of fit better than what Zion Williamson does, even though he's so fantastic and what we saw last short year. Answer, short answer, Chris, hell no. I'll tell you <laughs> why. <laughs> you get the number one pick and you yeah. win John Morant, you trade the number two and you get an asset and John Morant. Right. So at very least, you want the number one pick and then trade back to if you really aren't high on, on Zion, which I don't think anybody will, will, will choose. I love John Morant, though. I mean, anybody who watched uh, his first tournament game or seen his highlights on YouTube um, – realizes this guy is a phenomenal player as well um so you know i don't think put it this way if, if somebody somebody gets the number two pick i don't think they're going to be crying um because there's some good players at the top of this draft uh zion and jaw to me emerge as as the two best um but zion's still going to be the number one pick 
The Bulls last season were 27th in the league in three-point attempts. Uh, Jim Boylan and John Paxson have said in the media publicly that three-point shooting isn't necessarily a focus, and it's not really what they're trying to do offensively. Uh, when you hear something like that from a team that's struggling to win, do you kind of scratch your head and say, well, you know, if you were actually hacking the analytics and, and playing the way everyone else does, you might be a little bit more productive offensively? Yeah, I, I can't comment on, on those those comments from, from Boylan and Paxson. But, yeah, I think, you know, you have to essentially deal with three-point shooting in, in some capacity. Um, my old employer, the Spurs, is famous for not doing it. But their roster has LaMarcus, DeMar DeRozan, and Rudy Gay, phenomenal offensive players that thrive in the mid-range. And they were able to produce a top-ten offense with a very low amount of three-point attempts. Um, teams like Chicago, um, I think – you know, your best scorers like Laurie and, I mean, Levine is, is a surprisingly good three-point shooter. And I think they have to be creating good shots on the edge for this team. Um, so I, I don't want to prescribe any, any treatment for any team that I'm not a part of. But, sure. yeah, the, the realities of the era dictate that you should sort of have an emphasis on perimeter scoring. The perimeter is just too important now. It's It's – it's a huge element of the game, um, and, and I think to turn a blind eye to that trend um, is, is, is foolish to a degree. I just want to ask you one more thing uh, before I let you go. Uh, I think also that uh, interesting fact with three-point shooting is also how deep three-point shooting is going and someone like Brooke mm-hmm. Lopez opening up the floor for the rest of the Milwaukee Bucks or maybe Steph or Dame. Um, how much of an impact does it have for these guys who are shooting three-point shots three, four, five feet behind the three-point line. It's been really cool to watch. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, been, it's a logical progression, and Damian Lillard's shot to end round one was another data point in, in that the, the idea that these guys are getting really, really good at shooting from really, really far away. Um, and it just opens the court more. Um, Brooke Lopez is another fantastic example. Eric Gordon's another one who spots up really far away. Um, the playoffs have a lot of these guys. Um, and I, for me, I look at that and I say, well, geez, I mean, if these guys can shoot effectively from 27, 30 feet away, why is the three-point line at 24 feet? It's supposed to be a, a, a hard shot. Uh, <laughs> it's not a very hard shot for these dudes. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's opening the game. It's, it's increasing spacing. It's good for the sport. But I'll leave you with this idea. The three-point line is currently constructed on the NBA court. It was first drawn in 1961. Uh, and, and, and by a guy named Abe Saperstein for a failed basketball league called the American Basketball League way before the ABA. Um, what are the chances that the exact same three-point line we drew in 1961 for that group of players is the exact right three-point line for this group of players? I don't think it's very high. And I think what we're talking about with these guys' ability to shoot from 28 feet uh, is just further evidence that, that maybe it's time to revisit where that line is. The book is Sprawl Ball. It's fantastic. Go out and buy it now and, and read it. It's You'll really learn a lot about the NBA. Kirk, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Chris Black and Adam Abdallah on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app.